Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you've been with us through our series of studies in this epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, if you're really paying close attention, you'll notice I skipped a section. Uh, This morning we were uh, originally supposed and scheduled to look at uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 5. That would be the next section after what we had studied last week. But I couldn't help but notice, looking just a little bit ahead, that the next two verses after the passage that we would have had this week are very well suited to a time when we ordain and install leaders in the church. And so, with your uh, forbearance, we're going to skip the first 11 verses. We'll look at those next week. We're not going to skip them uh, entirely. We will come back to them next week. But I did want to jump to verse 12 and look at verses 12 and 13 this morning. Please give your attention to God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Well, as Owen mentioned at the beginning of the service, at the end of the service, in just a few moments, we are going to be ordaining one new elder, Ben Thompson, and then installing Ben and also two other elders who have been ordained in other churches, uh, Dave Borch and Tim Eshelman, and they will all three be installed as brand new elders in this church, and we are very thankful for God's provision for the most important need of leadership We are called Presbyterian. That means that we are an elder-led church. The word presbyter in the original Greek was the word for elder. And so to be Presbyterian means that the church is led by a group of elders, not one single elder, but by a group of elders. Together, these elders guide, direct, provide for, and protect the church of Jesus Christ. Men who have been called by Christ, who meet the biblical qualifications for elder, who then are nominated, trained, examined, and approved by the other elders, and then affirmed by a congregational vote, are put forward to serve as leaders in the church. Ben will be ordained, Ben Thompson will be ordained as an elder because he's not served as an elder before. He's a first-timer. But Dave and Tim, as I said, were ordained in other PCA churches, and so they, along with Ben, will then be installed. By means of installation, and what we mean by installation is that these elders ordained in the Church of Christ at large are particularly installed as leaders in this local congregation. In the two verses that we just read from 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul gives just a few instructions to the church, the members of congregations, regarding how you as members are to see and respond to the leaders that God has placed over you. It was interesting this week as I was researching these two verses. If you've ever been to my office, you see the Lord has provided over many years uh, a sizable library, which I'm very thankful for, and I looked through that entire library, I found two shelves that tell me how to be a good leader or tell other elders how to be a good leader. Two whole shelves in my library. I couldn't find a single book on how to follow a leader. 
I did find one book on membership which had a section of it that dealt with what it means to be a good member, but that's the closest thing I could find in my entire library. So much has been written both inside the church and outside the church about what good leadership looks like, but very little has been written about what it means to be a good follower of a leader, and that's really what we're looking at this morning in this passage. It's a shame because we are born as anti-authoritarian sinners. That's the nature we're born with. And as anti-authoritarian sinners, we live in a very anti-authoritarian culture, more so than many cultures that have ever existed on the face of the planet. We need instruction on how to follow leaders well. We tend to measure and evaluate churches based on how well the leaders are doing, but very rarely do we look at how the followers are following as an indicator of a healthy church. But the health and vitality of the church is based just as much on healthy followers as it is on healthy, strong leaders. Now just one caveat before I launch into the text. I did tell Owen this week that I really wished that I was a visiting pastor this morning. <laughs> just acknowledge this is a little awkward for me to tell you how to be a good follower as one of the leaders of this local church. I kind of wish we had brought in a guest preacher this morning. But, as always, I need to be reminded that these are God's words, not my words. I just need to faithfully tell you what God's word says here in verses 12 and 13, and so that's what I'll try to do. The one thing I want you to notice, first of all, is that the peace of the church is at stake. The peace of the church is at stake. Notice how these brief instructions that Paul gives to the members of the church, notice how it ends. Be at peace among yourselves. Good followers of good leaders means peace in the church. I've seen that to be true in many, many different experiences. If you are a member of this or any other PCA church, you have taken this vow before God and his people do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? If you're a member, you took a vow to submit to the leadership of the church, to follow well, and to pursue and promote and work for the peace of the church. And so that's how important this is for you as a responsibility as a member. We see that, yes, it is the leader's responsibility to keep the peace in the church and to work for the peace, but it is also equally the responsibility of every member of the church to seek and promote and strengthen the unity in the church. Matter of fact, I hate to say it, but in much of my experience, when I think of the shepherding issues that we deal with as elders in the church, I feel like so much, like 90% or more of the shepherding issues that we deal with in a church is trying to keep the peace while the members seem to be working to destroy it. And that's one of the hard things of being a leader. Before we take a look at the members' responsibilities, I do want to take a second to see how Paul describes what the elders' responsibilities are. He does it with three phrases, which are kind of interesting. So I do want to look at the elders' job description first so that we make sure you understand what you look to your leader to do. In the Greek, there's only one article for the three phrases that he used. And by article, I mean a and the. There's only one article for the three phrases that he uses to describe the work of an elder. 
That means that it's one position with three functions. It's not three different positions he's talking about. So when you read the three phrases, understand he's talking about one position, one leadership position in the church. And the phrases he uses leads almost every commentator to come to the conclusion that he's talking about elders here. The first phrase that he uses is by describing the elders as those who labor among you. Some of your translations may say toil there. And I think that actually gets a little closer to the original meaning in the Greek. The Greek word that Paul uses there for labor meant hard, physical, manual labor to the point of weariness. And it was normally used for hard, blue-collar, manual labor. But Paul, in his writings, uses the word often, and he means by it both physical labor and spiritual labors. And the idea behind it is hard work, toil, struggle against the forces of a fallen world to the point of weariness. In other words, when Paul talks about the work of of leaders, he expects them to work hard. Matter of fact, the very next verse, if you want to skip ahead to verse 14, he, he switches from speaking about the leaders to speaking about the congregation as a whole, and he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. And we've already seen that that was an issue in this new church in Thessalonica, that that the people were not working hard, that they were being idle for various reasons. And so Paul is making the point that the leaders are those who work hard. They toil among you. Paul spoke of his own example back in chapter 2, verse 9, when he said to the Thessalonian Christians, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. There's that same word again. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Notice that he describes his toil as an elder in the church, as apostle, as as one of the elders, and as apostle in the church. He describes it as working night and day, and he's speaking there partly of his work as a tent maker, so certainly manual physical labor. But he also includes in that the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... Paul worked hard, and he spoke about that hard work and the source that drove him in that hard work, not his pride, not his ambition, but he describes it in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, when it says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, there's that word again, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Elders, leaders in the church must be hard workers. That's expected when you take on the role of a leader. Sometimes when other pastors or other ruling elders will say to me, you know, ministry is just so hard. It's such hard work. And we start feeling sorry for ourselves with all the hard work and toil involved in being a leader of church. And I always try to remind them and say, you know, elders and pastors complaining about how hard of work the ministry is is kind of like a plumber complaining about leaking pipes. That's why you're there. That's what you're called to. It's hard work. That's why people need shepherds is because they're sinners, because their lives are messy, because keeping the peace is difficult. And so your elders are those who labor, who toil among you. Secondly, Elders are those who are over you in the Lord. Those who are over you in the Lord, Paul says. Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom. 
Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ guides the church. He provides for the church. He protects the church, his church, through the elders that he calls and prepares and equips and gifts to do the work of leading. Elders have authority. Elders have authority. But it's a delegated authority from Christ. When I became a parent, I began to understand delegated authority in a whole different way. Because when I would leave home with my young, from, from, to go off on a date with my wife or just to get away for a little while, I would leave my children in the care of a babysitter. And I made sure before I left the house that my children understood that they were now under the delegated authority of that babysitter. That when that babysitter tells them to do something or not to do something, they need to consider it as though I myself were saying it to them. And so my children understood what it meant to be under delegated authority. I understood what it meant. And that helps me to understand what it means to be an elder in the church because that's why Paul goes on to say that they are over you in the Lord. Elders are over you in the Lord, not in their own authority, not in their personal charisma or their own personal style of leadership. They are over you in the Lord. In other words, their authority comes from the Lord and they represent the authority of the Lord. And therefore, you obey them insofar as obeying them enables you to obey the Lord. For instance, if I were to leave my children in the care of a babysitter and the babysitter told them to break one of the rules of the house to do something that was wrong, that was contrary to what the parents had said they should do or should not do, then the child should disobey the babysitter. My, my children would sometimes get that instruction so they understood that that's what delegated authority meant. And so yes, elders make mistakes, elders sin, elders screw up, elders make foolish decisions, but in, as long as they are not requiring you to disobey the Lord by following in the direction they are leading, you should follow because you are under their authority in the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So you need to understand what the example of Christ is. You need to be studying the word yourself and knowing what the example of Christ is and the will of Christ is so that you can know when your leaders, your elders, step out of line with what Christ has said is true and right. There are bad elders. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad elders out there. But the focus here is on the majority of good elders. There is a process. If, if, if the Lord forbid this church should ever have an elder who's a bad elder, a bad leader, not qualified, leading in a bad direction, teaching heresy, promoting sin, if that's ever the case, be assured and be comforted that there is a process for dealing with bad elders. There's a process, biblical process, by which you can confront them and have them held accountable and have them deposed and removed if necessary. But the focus here is on the good elders. The elders who love the Lord and are humbly seeking to guide the church according to his will. Now, of course, I have to point out, now, anytime I talk about authority, I have to dissuade you from thinking about authority the way the world thinks about it. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, when he taught his apostles about what authority would look like in his church. 
He says to them in verse 25 of Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles, those rulers out there in the world, in the darkness, the, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is one who serves. To be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ is to be a servant responsible for other servants. Leadership in the kingdom of God is not about getting to, to say how things are going to happen, to get your way, to drive your agenda. To be a leader in the kingdom of God is to take on responsibility for the well-being of the sheep. It's added responsibility is what it is. Leaders are responsible not only for their own lives before the Lord, not only for their own families before the Lord, but they're responsible for the church family before the Lord. And they're accountable for it. And leadership is about serving the needs of the people under your, that are under your responsibility, your sphere of responsibility. Paul talks about the responsibility and the authority of leadership in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8 where he refers to the leaders in the church. He says, our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, speaking to the church. Leaders in the church are given authority for the purpose of building up individual believers and the body of believers as a whole. That's also what Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, Christ gave leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Leaders, if they're going to be Christ-like leaders, are going to be willing to lay down their lives for the well-being, the growth, the nurturing of the church. Whatever that takes, that's what authority looks like in the kingdom of God. The third, third phrase that Paul uses is those who admonish you. Those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. It's a word that comes from the realm of teaching. The focus of the work of an elder, according to Acts chapter 6, is prayer and the ministry of the word. Elders must never lose sight of that. That prayer and ministry of the word is to be the focus of their work. The word admonishing is teaching, but it's more than teaching. It's teaching the truth, plus exhorting God's people to obey and live by the truth, and also correcting God's people when they fall out of line from the word of God. Correcting them when they fall into sin. Correcting them when they fall into false doctrine. That's admonishing. And it's interesting to me that historically we talk about either two or three marks of the church. And two of those marks of the church are clear biblical teaching and discipline. That's what admonishing is. That's the work of the elder. So the job description of the elder, according to Paul, is to work hard, to toil in leading and teaching God's people. Teaching them from the pulpit, teaching them in classes, teaching them in small groups, teaching them one-on-one, -on -one, imparting the word of God to God's people. Now I think about this new church in Thessalonica, remember that Paul was concerned that they hadn't gotten the training that they needed. They hadn't, and certainly the elders in the church in Thessalonica as a brand new church were probably relatively new in the faith. They had a lot of growing to do themselves, a lot of sin in their lives still remaining. They had a lot of growing to do in terms of what it meant to be a leader and understanding. And so the church in Thessalonica would have to be patient and to show a lot of grace to their leadership. 
I'm sure that's why Paul feels it's important to tell them how they're to view and respond to their leaders. Think of what a blessing you have here, where when I look at the, at the elders of this church, many of them, maybe even most of them, have served more than a decade, some more than a couple of decades in leadership in the church. What a blessing to the church. But let's look now at what the responsibilities of a church member are towards your leaders. That one book I found on how to be a good member, written by Jonathan Lehman, it's called Church Membership. And in that book, he says that too many Christians want the privileges of church membership, but not the responsibilities. Reminds me of my kids when they'd come home from college. Don't do this to your parents. You know, this, I, I did it. I know I did it. It's a natural tendency. But when they came home after spending eight months, nine months living on their own, kind of running their own life, not having to answer to mom and dad, they'd come home in May or June to spend three months, four months at home. And they liked living independently. And they didn't want to come back un under the authority of the parents. But boy, they sure loved having three square meals a day and a nice roof over their head and a television to watch and a car to drive. They wanted all the privileges of being members of the household, but none of the responsibilities. They weren't used to being told you have to be in by a certain hour, you can only have to, the car from this hour to that hour, you have to go out and mow the lawn. They didn't want any of the responsibilities. Too many church members are like that. I want to sit in my pew and get all the privileges of being a member, but don't ask anything of me. I don't want the responsibilities. Well, Paul's talking about the responsibilities. What's interesting to me, though, is that he doesn't talk about actions here. Actions are important. How you respond physically, you know, emotionally, mentally, too, the leadership of your church is important. But what he talks about is the attitude that members have towards their leaders. That's what really strikes me here. How do you view your leaders? Matter of fact, if I were to walk into any church on the planet and I wanted to get a quick handle on how healthy and vibrant and biblical that church was, one of the first questions I would ask is, how do you view your leaders? What's your attitude towards the leadership of your church? It's a very telling sign of the health of the church. I saw in one of the newscasts a few days ago that our current president has an approval rating of 39%. I don't care whether you think this president is the greatest president we ever had or the worst president we ever had. I don't care what your own personal opinion is. I'll tell you, objectively, it's bad news for a culture if your leader only has 39% approval. I'm not saying who's at fault for that. I'm just saying it's bad when the view of the leadership is that low. And if this church had a view of 39% support for its leadership, this church would be in very, very serious trouble. Your attitude towards the leadership is crucial. And Paul gives two phrases for you to hold on to, to remember about how you view your leaders. Two phrases. The first one is to respect those who labor among you, who are over you and who admonish you. Respect them. And I'm going to add the word trust there. Respect and trust them because there's an element in the original word that Paul uses for respect. If you notice that there are other translations, some of the other translations don't use the word respect here. I'm not quite sure. It's kind of an unusual uh, form of the word that Paul uses in the Greek. The, the, the root of the word means to know. But with the additions to the root word, what he's getting at, I think, is that you, I think respect is a good translation, but you have to add in there the idea of respecting your leadership because you know and understand them. Respecting your leaders because you know and understand them. 
Respect for authority is a, a extremely important biblical life principle. That's why it's encoded in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number five is to respect your honored mother, to honor your mother and father. But in that is anybody who understands what the fifth commandment is really about. It's about respecting authority in all areas of life. Respecting authority in the home, respecting authority in the church, respecting authority in the government. Honor those authorities that God has placed over you. Respect is crucial. But the idea of appreciating, acknowledging, recognizing, respecting, knowing your leaders, I think, adds that idea is that you need to trust your leaders. In other words, if it gets to the point in your relationship with your leaders where you feel like the leaders of your church are just some kind of a cold voice of authority that makes inscrutable decisions behind closed doors, then that's going to be detrimental to your relationship with the leaders. It's going to be detrimental to the church if that's how you see your leaders. Instead, you need to make the effort to know, to recognize, to understand, to respect, and to trust them for the work that they do, and to trust their good intentions. The trust and respect of the membership of the church is the currency that the leadership has to work with in leading the church. And when that bank account of trust and respect gets low, the church becomes in great danger and the church comes to a standstill and leaders are handcuffed. When trust and respect are high, the elders are energized and empowered to lead the church even through the most challenging or difficult of times. But when respect and trust are low, elders become discouraged and eventually burn out. I've mentioned this before, but I think it bears witness again that I've served on many committees and commissions of presbytery that have gone in to visit troubled churches. And when you get done listening to all the complaints and all of the accusations and all the charges that people have towards each other, towards leaders, towards members of the church, what it all comes down to usually is a loss of trust. And especially when talking about leaders, a loss of trust and respect. When leaders lose the trust and respect of the members, then a switch gets flipped. And if you don't trust your leaders, you all of a sudden become their accusers. You start criticizing. You start becoming a, a private detective looking for evidence to show that they are bad leaders. And that's what I see in troubled churches happen all the time. The issues are all different. But at the root of it is a loss of trust in your leadership. And when leaders lose the trust of the people, the church begins to implode. And I've seen it happen. And it's ugly. Leaders do sin. Leaders make foolish choices. Leaders do things that legitimately will drain down that bank account of trust and respect. But members often willfully, in this anti-authoritarian nature that we have, will seek to tear down our leaders as well, actively do so. And too many church members would rather sit back and criticize rather than pursuing their leaders, trying to know them, communicate with them, understand them, hear their mind, hear their heart as they do the work of the ministry. 
I have known many cases where members of the church, in, in, in my time here, many cases where members of the church have come to me or to come to the elders with their concerns, with their criticisms, constructive criticisms, asking for us to explain decisions we've made, asking us to, to, to discuss the issues that they're concerned about. And in almost every case, it's ended well. But I'll tell you, I also know there's many cases, not just here, but in many other contexts where I've been, where people do the natural anti-authoritarian thing, which is to go and find somebody who agrees with you and your criticism and criticize the leadership behind their back. And I will tell you, every time you do that, you damage the leadership. Every time you do that, you damage the church. Every time you do that, you damage the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. We want to be criticized. We want to be shown if we're leading you any way that's not according to the word of God. But we need you to come to us, to communicate with us, to hear us. And if you convince us that we're doing it wrong, we will repent, change, do whatever we need to do. But that communication is so important because it keeps that trust and respect at the level it needs to be for the church to be healthy and for leadership to be energized and to do the work that they're doing. And that leads to the second phrase that Paul uses. First of all, respect and trust your leaders. Secondly, highly value your leaders. I'm struck by, again, I, um, I keep referring to the original language, but Paul packs a lot into the words that he uses here, and he packs a lot into one word here. When he says in verse 13 that, we are to, that you as members are to esteem your leaders very highly in love, that's one word in which he packs in all kinds of prefixes. He's just piling on adjectives to really stress that he wants you to highly value those whom God has placed in leadership over you. Highly value them. Of all the things you treasure about your church, and I hope there are many things you treasure about your church, I hope that the leaders are at the top of the list. Because in many ways, so, as the leadership of the church goes, so goes the church. As we said earlier, this is an anti-authoritarian age. Authority figures in the family, in the school, in the police force, in the military, in the government are mocked and ridiculed mercilessly in the media that are around us. And that mindset does infect the church. It infects the way that we think. It affects the way we view our leaders. And you as church members have to actively, aggressively work against that perception. A low view of leaders leads to a low view of what it means to be a member. And being a low, having a low view of your leaders and having a low view of what it means to be a member leads to a low view of the church. We need to remember what the church is. We need to remember that when the elders lead the church, this is the most important movement that is happening in the universe. John Calvin wrote this about the work of elders. He said, the work of elders is the edification of the church, the eternal salvation of souls, the restoration of the world, and in short, the kingdom of Christ. The excellence and splendor of this work is beyond value. We are the embassy and the outpost of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this fallen world. We are aliens and strangers in our own culture, but we are citizens of heaven and citizens of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's the kingdom that our leaders represent and that we as members 
are citizens of. The most important factor in the health and growth of this or any church is the quality of its leadership as it's measured and defined by scripture. And so therefore, you need to highly value your leaders. In this book that Harry Reader wrote, Harry Reader is one of my mentors, taught me a lot about leadership. And in this book that he wrote on leadership called The Leadership Dynamic, he introduces the book in this way. He says, if I were to begin my ministry as a pastor tomorrow, knowing what I know today, there's one commitment that I would elevate in terms of priority and attention. That one commitment is leadership. Specifically, I would commit myself to defining with greater clarity the biblical concept of a leader. Then I would commit to investing more time and focus in developing leaders committed to that biblical concept of leadership. Finally, I would seek ways to deploy them not only in the church and their families, but into every honorable sphere of influence in our culture. He goes on to say, the moment has been, this moment, uh, this moment of opportunity in our culture today has been created by a vacuum of good leadership and a simultaneous phenomenon of cynicism and discouragement concerning leadership at large, in which the present leaders and concepts of leadership dominating our world today have been produced. Let's return to the mandate, the mission, and biblical model of Christian leadership and intentional leadership multiplication. If we succeed, then the church will again become a leadership factory and distribution center. If that is an important part of our mission, then you as members need to be good followers because good leaders need good followers. Speaking of highly esteeming your leaders, I came across this week in doing my research, came across an old illustration I've heard a number of times. I'll share it with you again. How to get rid of a pastor, and I'm going to broaden it. How do you get rid of an elder? Step one, say a loud amen once in a while when he's teaching or preaching, and he'll preach himself to death. Thank him and compliment him for his service as a leader, and he'll work himself to death. Ask him for a way that you can serve in the church, and he'll die of a heart attack. <laughs> or if none of those work, have a group of people pray for him. He'll become so effective that another church will be happy to take him off your hands. Now, to give the other side of the picture, the Bible has a lot to say about what it means to be a godly, Christ-like leader, a lot. But that's not this passage, that's not this sermon. Just a couple of verses to lay before you the challenge of the attitude that the Lord expects you to have towards your leaders. Paul is saying that good leaders need good followers, and that's your responsibility. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17 say, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have, will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Know, respect, and highly esteem your leaders for the good of the elders, for the good of the church, and as Paul says here, or the writer of Hebrews says here, for the good of your own soul. That's how important this is. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the godly, Christ-like leaders that you have provided in all of our lives, throughout our lives. Thank you for those who have led well here in the past, in past generations. Thank you for those that you have called and equipped to serve now, and especially these new leaders that are stepping forward 
and humility, depending upon your grace. Lord, I pray that as this church grows, that the leadership also would grow, and as the leadership grows, the membership would grow. Not grow numerically so much as grow spiritually, grow in love for Christ and love for his kingdom and love for the gospel that brings this transformation. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time, without further ado, I'd like to call forth our new elders, newly elected elders, Dave Borch, Tim Eshelman, and Ben Thompson. And also along with these three men, if any others who are elders, not just in this church, but also in any PCA church, if you're a PCA elder, I'd like to invite you to come forward and stand with these men. All right, these men have been called, they have been examined, they have been tested, and they have been approved by the elders and affirmed by your vote, and so now we offer them the opportunity to take the vows. In Ben's case, these are vows for ordination and installation. For Tim and Dave, these are vows related to the installation to this church. Do you men believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? I do. do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine that is taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow? I do. Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? I do. Do you accept the office of ruling elder in this church? and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life, and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer. I do. do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? I do. And finally, do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? I do. Having heard these vows, I now ask you who are members of Oakwood Presbyterian Church, if you give affirmation to this vow, then to raise your right hand and say, I do. Do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elders, and do you promise to yield to them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, church entitles them? If so, raise your hand and say, I do. Thank you. At this point, I'm going to ask Ben if you would kneel since this is an ordination for you. I'm going to ask you who are elders in the PCA to lay hands upon Ben. And then I'm going to ask our brother, our elder, Doug Sharp, to lead in prayer for Ben and for Tim and Dave. Heavenly Father, we are very grateful that you have gifted these men uh, with gifts of leadership gifts of discernment, gifts of service, that you have enabled them to be uh, willing and available to serve you in this church. May those gifts be mightily present in them. May you grant them 
strength and endurance as they use those gifts and work among us. May you grant them to be uh, faithful and selfless servants of you as they serve your church. Grant them humility. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We offer to you the right hand of fellowship. We're glad to have you as elders of the church. You men will stay here a moment. The elders are free to go, but the, the new elders, I'm going to ask you to stay. I now pronounce and declare that Ben Thompson, Dave Borch, and Tim Eshelman have been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as ruling elders in this church, agreeable to the word of God and according to the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such, they are entitled to all the encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Elder Messelink has a message for us. I've been asked to exhort our newly elected and installed elders. I'll get there. Ben Thompson, David Borch, Tim Eshelman. We thank God for each one of you. We thank God that two of you, Dave and Tim, come to the office of elder at this church, bringing with you the experience that you have served in other PCA churches. We thank God for you, Ben, for your diligence, study, and service to this church, and for the wisdom that you bring to our session as a younger man to give us balance and perspectives that we may not always see. Many years ago, when I was a newly elected officer and my hair was a different color, a wise elder gave me some excellent advice. As elders in the local church, we seldom deal with weighty ecclesiastical matters, he said. Mainly, we deal with the day-to-day grunt work of trying to do things in good order. When making decisions in session, always ask yourself, is this what I want? Or is this what is good for the church? Is it in line with scripture or with my ego? I've never forgotten that, and it's been a good guide for me. The work of elder is spiritual. It is both an inward and outward calling. This office is not an honorary function or a good old boy network, but rather a call to spiritual labor. It demands sacrifice, perseverance, commitment, and sometimes even suffering for the cause of Christ. It requires extra time in God's word, in meetings, in listening to people and their problems, and in counseling and disciplining or discipling God's people. And more than ever, it requires elders to be diligent in much prayer. We must be men of prayer if we are to honor the Lord in our office. Be in constant prayer for yourself. Pray fervently that you do not fall into temptation or are led astray by sin, knowing full well that now, more than ever, 
you are a target of Satan. Pray for the sheep of your fold, that you are diligent in your care for them. Pray for your pastors and for their protection. Be prepared to defend them from unwarranted attacks from within or without. I would urge you wives of elders and deacons to pray for your husbands because you also play a critical role in the ministry of this church as you sacrifice your husband's time away from his family. As elders, there will be times of great joy when you are involved in seeing people of all ages come to Christ and you have the privilege of receiving their testimony and their membership. There will also be times of sorrow and stress as you, have to, as you have to deal with the issues and results of sin. We all pray that there will always be more joy than sorrow. As elders, you are also ministers. Webster's Dictionary defines the minister as anyone authorized to carry on or assist in the spiritual function of the church. Through your spiritual calling and election by the members of this church, you have been called to minister to this congregation. Pray that you will perform this task well. Finally, I would exhort you with the words of Christ to his disciples in Mark chapter 10. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would first be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We ask God's blessing and grace on each of you, as well as your fellow elders and pastors in the congregation of Oakwood Presbyterian Church. <clears throat>